Welcome to What's Up with Opera. Opera is deeply rooted in history and tradition, but we're living in a post-George Floyd Me Too world, and now artists are rethinking the art form. So whose stories are we telling, and who gets to tell them? Can traditional opera be saved, and should it be? And what needs to happen for it to thrive? I speak with movers and shakers who have a bold new vision. Joining us today is General Director of Opera Philadelphia, David Devan. When opera fans discuss a production, the first thing they talk about are the singers, the voices that light up the stage and the soul, the divas and the devos. But they're basically the hired guns, brought in for a production that was conceived two or three years before by managers and administrators. And those managers have to predict what an opera lover will want to see years down the road and what will keep the old fans, but also bring in the new. These are the challenges that keep general directors of opera companies up late at night. But David Devan has found solutions to those challenges. Opera Philadelphia is the darling of the opera world, a big company that's also innovative and nimble and taking risks on a big budget. In recent years, the company has developed 21 new operas. Even more impressive is the success rate. These operas have been picked up by other companies and led to 62 independent productions in eight countries. Opera Philadelphia has its own digital channel, and it includes performances, lectures, discussions, and artist interviews, and other cultural, social, and historical perspectives on opera. David Devan is an instigator and a thought leader in the opera industry and seems to be fearless, and he joined me from his office in Philadelphia. I started by asking him what's motivated him to take a large, established company down a potentially risky path. Survival. That was the motivator. Uh, Philadelphia is wedged between New York and Washington, D.C. Um, when I arrived, the Metropolitan Opera had 4,000 subscribers that resided in Philadelphia. And the top three donors to the Metropolitan Opera in their entire donor family were from Philadelphia, not New York. So it became clear that in order for opera in Philadelphia to survive, back from business school, the best way to compete is not to, um, was to come up with a, a artistic point of view, an artistic practice that was highly differentiated from the opera that surrounded us because so that was the challenging part. The good side part is, is you know, 40% of the U.S. population lives within a two-hour drive of Philadelphia. So how can we be a part of a future? And this was back in 2006. So at the time, it was like, we're going to stop trying to be network television. Remember, this is 2006 when there was network television, and it was a big thing. Um, we're going to focus on being a specialty channel. And we're going to focus on being the HBO of opera. And that means that we are going to define a new way of thinking about the genre and the form. And that's space that the other people in our major market can't do. And with that decision, that's kind of what got me the job. And so everyone signed up for change. Hmm. It's one thing to sign up for it at the interview uh, process, and then the snappy little Canadian shows up and wants to tear it up. It, it, it took us a bit of time. But the organization really did believe in wanting to do something progressive and do something that was meaningful. 
and do something that could uplift the community. And that was the basis for the change. I will say that one of the things about Opera Philadelphia relative to the U.S. opera market is we're relatively nimble as well. We have our own orchestra. We have a full agma chorus. You know, we have a lot of the mechanical parts of a major opera companies, but we don't have fixed contracts and we didn't own the opera house. We rent it. And so we had a lot of variability in our ways we could think about things, which was unlike some of the larger companies in Chicago and New York. Um, so while we were a very substantial American company relative to like the top four or top five, we actually relatively nimble. With all that said, the amount of resources and people that I had to shepherd around were substantial. The board was 60 when I arrived, and uh, the staff was about 450 to 500 people. So it was, a, it was a big thing to move. But to frame it, to give it a frame, to give the change a reason and a way, a map for people to make decisions, because if you're going to be the HBO of opera, you know, you're not renting the traditional production of Bohem. So I've always tried in my time here to not come up with specific decisions because I think only artists can actually do inspired work. But I've tried to create a roadmap for decision making that is progressive and meets the artistic and administrative goals of the organization. That's an incredible rethink. But how did you start? Like, what was your first step in making changes? Yeah. So remember, this is 2006, right? And so the first year is like, I don't know, figuring out how to talk to people and raise money and explain my weird accent and uh, <laughs> uh, and raise money and raise money and raise money. It's America. Um, but remember, 2008 was that little thing that wasn't so little, which was a big recession. And so we had been working at changing staff. We'd been um, thinking through repertoire plans. And the first step was the American Repertoire Program, where we were going to commit to develop one new American opera every year for a decade. And, you know, the Canadian coming in goes, hey, this is the birthplace of America. We should be the leading instigators of American opera in this country because the country started here. And you can say whatever you want about the U.S., um, and certainly it's not without its problems. But the one consistent thing is the United States has always been about progress of some kind. Progress is something that's held at a very high esteem in American culture. So that was my first thing, the American Repertoire Program. But then the recession hit, and then I had to do a big act of creative destruction, which is something I really believe anybody who wants to progress needs to do. And I can explain what that is in a minute. So recession. Recession means less. There's less money. There's less everything. So we didn't want to cut back on quality because the quality, if we're going to be HBO of opera, we had to get our quality up to HBO level versus a regional television station. So we've been working on that and with the raising money part. So we did four operas in the large opera house at the time, and we canceled one of the operas, um, went to three. And what emerged was our chamber series, 
at the Perlman Theater, which put us on the local and national map. And we did it as elective purchase so subscribers didn't have to buy it because it was a recession. And we did really provocative pieces there. And it sold out. You know, we got our first New York Times finally figured out where we were as the Washington Post was. We did um, Henza's Phaedra um, within the first year. And if your listeners know the work of Henza, we'll understand that that is really something quite different. So that was the culmination. And we put an American repertoire into that chamber series. So that's kind of how it all started. That's quite amazing. Now, Creative destruction, that's not a term I've heard before, but it feels really significant to the work you're doing. What is it? Yeah, it's an economic theory, and it basically says in order for new activity in any market to happen, ideas, producers, and companies need to die, right? It's just part of the cycle. It's the yogic version of economics, right? You push your body uh, and out of death, out of destruction comes life. And I learned that at business school. So my logic is, is that arts organizations as not-for-profits aren't in an open market system. And we never destroy anything. We always just kind of build and put stuff on top of stuff. And so what would happen is you would lose any innovation. So I advocate for arts organizations to do self-imposed creative destruction. And when you destruct something, you don't replace it. You just create space for something new to emerge. And, And I think you put the artists in charge because it gives space for smarter, more creative, artistically inclined people will find solutions that you, L producer, can't think because, well, you're not an artist. Um, So it's been something that we've used whenever things don't seem to be working. We sort of go, okay, what part's really not working? And let's just stop doing it. I have no doubt there are people, obviously, who celebrate this and love this. And you have some success now to back it up but I'm sure you've also had resistance <laughs> to your creative destruction on empowering and lifting up those artists' voices. You want to tell me about the challenges? We, are, we're on, we can see each other on camera. It's a podcast. But like this skin, it ain't skin. It's titanium <laughs> armor. Um, yeah, again, that comes down to coming up with some understandings and agreements on not what you're going to do, but why you're doing it. So... I've come in recent years with our deep equity and inclusion work um, to understand that as community agreements. So how you get that stuff happening is you bring your artists and your boards and your staff and you negotiate a community agreement. And the community agreement is about how you're going to do work, how you're going to make decisions who's going to make decisions you know it's not about the end product with a community agreement it's how you're going to behave and we now work on this principle every day and that's been born out of our equity and inclusion work and the equity inclusion work was born out of our artist-centered work because we've evolved that to be we're an artist and community centered organization 
And when we start letting the voices of the community in and give them authority and power, that widens our understanding of things. And so all of that has been sort of like a magic stew a little bit that's been about artistic interrogation, which we started with the being the HBO of opera and then being artist centered as being a root to that, which HBO did in the early days. And then really truly listening to our community and our community is in a bunch of white people make an opera. Our community's bigger than that. And those three things sort of happening in sequence and together um, has informed each other. You're listening to What's Up With Opera. If you're enjoying our conversation with David Devan, make sure to check out our earlier episodes. They include interviews with Devon Tynes, Peter Sellers, Barbara Hannigan, Anne Majette, and many others. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to hit subscribe and leave us a review. I think it's um, astonishing that, and I think it speaks to how important that is to you, that you were able to bring along an organization to adopt this and try it out because it would have been unbelievably risky. And as you say, I mean, I understand there's survival at play and the company's trying to go ahead. So maybe that's part of it. It's sort of up against the wall. We don't have any other options. This is our Hail Mary pass. We'll try this crazy thing with community agreements and new opera. But it's still an astonishing thing to have shepherded. I'm fascinated also by that HBO sort of connection, right? Taking that model, which is something people can really understand. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that model obviously has grown and manifested and obviously been a vehicle for what you care about? Yeah. I mean, well, it turns out, thanks to COVID, we've actually become the HBO of opera because we have our Opera Philadelphia channel and it's not going away. We used the opportunity of COVID to ask ourselves, is there a a different way of expressing opera? And, oh, right, there's no heritage in this space. So we don't have to bring 400 years of white European tradition to this. We can open this up to who we are now. Um, But along the way, in about 2014, we weren't getting the results that we were expecting. Subscriptions weren't growing through the roof. And we had somebody, a very smart person, uh, Maureen Craig, uh, coming, who's now joined our board. And she's a brand specialist and one of the leading qualitative researchers in the country. And she put a slide in my office here. You can't see it, but I've got a big TV set behind me. And she put a slide on it and it said, you need to be more like the Sopranos. And it had a picture of the last episode of the Sopranos. And it said, you are a media alternative. That is your competitive landscape. And you need to start thinking about it that way. So what we did is that we need to come up with another solution that's not subscription. And that's how our Festival O was born in 2018. And that was another big change. Now, we learned some lessons and it put probably the most stress on the organization that there's ever been. 
And so we've spent the last couple of years sort of right-sizing the thing and also figuring out how it to be in relationship with subscribers because they're still subscribers. It's not a full active creative destruction. You just can't go goodbye. But we want to be radical about new audience development um, while we are engaging the existing audience. But radical means that we need to think about different ways of doing it. And this, a lot of this community conversation is a big part of being radical. So, yeah, and if you're interested, I'll, I'm happy to talk about Madama Butterfly as an example of community input. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's how the HBO thing we went from H, wanting to be HBO in terms of an artistic interrogation. Then we went to Netflix as a packaging and product development tool in the binge watching and being media. And then now we're going to have sort of three pillars. We have screen stage and community and then thus the rest was history and become some sort of a netflix drama i think um i would love to hear the madam butterfly example i don't think i know this about your company so well it's not it's it's, 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 it's not been public um i had no problem talking about it so we had through turn dot a number of years ago um through dialogue with the aapi community the Asian American Pacific Islander community, uh, I instituted a policy of no yellow face. And so through that dialogue, we had conversations about butterfly and producing butterfly. And we made an agreement that we would not do it until we had um, Asian artists that were able to occupy the Asian roles. And that took five years of development support auditioning, et cetera, and got them. And, and we're going to do the opera in spring of 2020 with a, a very contemporary production that really sort of took an anti-American stand. Fine. But then COVID hit and we had to cancel it. And then we started talking further with the AAPI community and they were like, hey, yeah, um, so great. You did the casting, you did but then you just didn't continue to involve us in the decision-making process. And then our staff was saying, hold up. There's so much anti-Asian hatred right now with COVID. Are we really going to open the next season with Butterfly? So we made a decision to defer Butterfly. And we've created a community council from the AAPI community who is helping us make decisions about representation and storytelling. It's still an Italian opera. You know, it's written by a white European guy who thought he knew a lot and researched a lot about Japan. But, you know, that community needs to be part of the identity of these people in the story. Um, and so we're working through that. And what we did instead was we decided to do Rigoletto. 85% of the cast would be able to do Rigoletto, and then we moved some of them over to another project. So they got that, and they're getting Butterfly in two years. But an interesting thing happened along the way. Over 50% of the cast has never been cast out of anything outside of Butterfly or their Asian identity. So when Butterfly happens, guess who's going to be in the audience? Right. It's because not because we're clever marketers and we want bums in seats. It's because we're going to produce something that is of, by and for a community that is part of the story. 
That really speaks to how you're spreading around the power, obviously, and moving hierarchy, uh, bringing in other people to talk about how I'm being seen on stage, how I'm being represented, actually having those voices in the room beyond casting is still a very bold move that we don't see a lot of. I know there are some, I know Santa Fe also has the Pueblo community involved in a council, but um, that's a really new initiative. Well, and to, so and, this and sort of to, brings to me postpone to... Butterfly, to postpone the moneymaker. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? To yes. Not that opera makes money, but you, you, you know what I mean? Like it... it uh, you know, it's one of the top three, right? And to sort of go, no, after we thought we'd done good work. It, yeah, it's it's very it's very interesting on many fronts, that idea of uh, art for art's sake. I'm sure you had people who argued about that and the genius of Puccini and uh, all of those pieces. But what a it's a very strong commitment to community to recognize the moment in time mm-hmm. you were in as well, that yeah. this would, it's not the time for yeah. this piece. And then to take care of those artists. And I've had conversations with other artists, obviously, you know, through the podcast about that idea of, yeah, you get cast, but you only get cast as a teller, right? I think Madame Butterfly, I've said to other people, was the very first show where I saw that sort of commitment to it. Uh, it was in a show in Regina. And I remember that that singer barely had enough voice right. to finish the show. So she, I knew she was cast for her identity. It was not a vocal match at all. And so that was fascinating to me because that's not it's helpful. Not, it's not helpful to, to anybody, which is why it took us five years. Do you know what I mean? To find the cast, you know, if you are going to expend the energy, thought and commitment to upholding people who have been left out of the conversation, you have to make sure that you're setting the perfect table for them. If you're inviting them to dinner, Everything about it needs to be thoughtful and setting it up for the most beautiful experience. So the table has to be set right. The preparation has to be done to make it all seem effortless mm-hmm. so everyone can enjoy each other's company. I love dinner parties, clearly. Um, you know, and so, yeah, this issue of identity and artistic capacity and vocal capacity and vocal readiness um, is something that you have to take, but that means that you have to change your planning cycles and your decision-making time if you want to make sure that you're upholding things. And this is the whole issue of, we don't use the word diversity at Opera Philadelphia at all, ever. We talk about equity because you can get diversity without equity, which is what you just described. Equity, as I understand it, is observing that people are all starting at different places and making adjustments and competence and allowances and support for it to to be leveled so if there is singers that come from uh, an identity um, that's represented on stage and you want that to be part of the narrative and the realization of the piece and maybe the community needs it well then you need to ask yourself well maybe we'll do that work in five years instead of two years because it'll take that much time you know we've just announced our rossini's otello you know, and there's an interesting case in point that Larry Brownlee, um, you know, seriously accomplished international tenor, African-American, um, who's an artistic advisor of Opera Philadelphia and has become an opera board member because we have artists on our board. Yay. But he's only been offered the role of Otello. That's not the right role for his voice. He can't sing it. The right role is Rodrigo. But no one's offered him that. But this took years to sort out and get him as a Rodrigo and then find an Otello in a city that has 52% black and brown people. The Otello singer needed to be 
a black singer. But no one's casting a black singer in this role anywhere in the world. So we are supporting a young, beautiful tenor, but it means that we've had to make accommodations and do extraordinary things to be able to um, support uh, Quanzi. I've had conversations uh, with some other people talking about the pipeline, for lack of a better word, but this thing that you're absolutely talking about, which is how do we show different people on stage when we can only hire what comes out of the university and, and should we be looking at the university for how they're sourcing or young artist programs? Your young artist programs are extremely mm -hmm. diverse. I can see that on your website. I can see the people that you're casting, but you're really pointing to the opera company being a much bigger player and actually... This would be in Matthew Epstein's oh, world. We, he was a well-known we well. a long time ago. <laughs> and, but this was what Matthew said to me when I was in a young artist program in the late 1980s, is that agents are bookers now. Correct. They don't manage careers. And that really, in the art form, how it was structured at an earlier time was that you would want to nurture an artist. You would see where they were going to be in five years, 10 years, and you would plan and you would work with companies mm -hmm. to develop them along. And that is not a model we've seen for some yeah. time. So is that, yeah. <laughs> am I sort of we recognizing that yes. role. And the other thing is places of higher education are completely racist structures. They can move with the best of intentions to work towards diversity, but they are not anti-racist organizations. They can't be. So if you're only looking at the schools or certain schools, you're already eliminating some possible people. So what do you do there? Who's going to pick up the mantle of that and sort of look at supporting and developing and stuff? And I think the only people to do it are the producers. Because if we wait for a system that's been built for 200 years to produce something to change, it'll be 100 years from now. And I'm not dissing the universities per se. You know, they've got a serious amount of heritage that's woven into the fabric of our white-centered world. That's not to say there aren't academics of color and people doing important work. I'm talking about the system. So I think we need to be in dialogue with them. You know, we're blessed in Philadelphia of two of the greatest training institutions on the planet Earth for um, opera. And so we have a, a really, um, Michael Eliason has joined um, us as an artistic advisor. We have a great relationship with the Academy of Vocal Arts. So we're having these dialogues. Do you know what I mean? So I think there's a responsibility as an employer to help nurture and develop. You're a revolutionary thinker. I, it's, that's no, what I have to you say. know what it is? It's back to where we started this. There's <laughs> one word to describe our work here: survival. That if we don't do these sorts of things, you know, the world is coming back to, and it's going to be a different world. And if we don't do this level of interrogation and thought and innovation or change or evolution, whatever you want to call it, we're not going to be here. 
it really begs the question, is opera the place that we, like, can we make change I think, from here? Are I we think impactful? we can. If you think about, like, what are the things on TikTok that everyone watches? They're the craziest, most virtuosic, out of this world, not to do with reality things. Well, that's opera, right? I mean, it's crazy virtuosic, the singing. It's extreme in every way. Opera's closest thing, I think, is early hip-hop virtuosic urban stories told unrelentlessly or relentlessly, I should say. Do you know what I mean? But that's, you know, so yeah, if we could get out of our own way, we could make it actually matter. So what needs to happen from here? That's a great question. I think we really need to widen the space. And I do think this idea of being artist and community centered, like for real, not just made up committee meetings and stuff, but like agency and authority. I think our communities and our artists are going to be necessary partners in figuring out how to put 21st century fingerprints on opera. And when that happens, it will be in relationship with community and it will have a a path forward. But that's, you could ask me next week, but that's my thinking today. What are the future goals you have for your company? Yeah, I think for Opera Philadelphia, I want to make sure that we emerge out of the pandemic, the kind of after COVID period, (laughs) to answer that question, to be responsive and lead at the same time on how the joy and love of singing can be a part of our community and uplift that community. And I have no idea how that's going to happen yet, because if I did, it wouldn't really be the answer because it's going to be iterative and it's going to be a process. And we need to make sure that we have enough inquisitive people in our company, on our board and on our staff that we can go on that journey. And that's my great goal. And if oh, and that's the other thing. I think our work has to be bigger than ourselves. If you think about from the 1950s, Um, to at least 2010, arts organizations were about building their institutions. Uh, My hope is, is that we'll do something that's deeply meaningful and people go, have you heard what's happening in Philly? And everyone's about what's happening in Philly. And And then the second thing is, oh, right, that was Opera Philadelphia. If I could land that plane, that would be amazing. Um, I'm inspired by the idea that it all starts with being inquisitive and not having all the answers. And and uh, it takes a lot of courage and bravery, which I know is acquired through experience of, of holding the space, just as giving up power requires that same kind of, just sort of uncomfortableness, but just hold the space and see what happens. Uh, I'm so grateful for my time with you today and for this very frank conversation. And I'm leaving with lots of things to consider and um, ponder uh, because I am passionate about this art form. And I want to—I do believe it's an agent of change. And I think we have a great future ahead of us. Uh, and I think the work you're doing in Opera Philadelphia is one of those places I can take a lot of inspiration from. Thank you for your time today, David. Lovely to be with you, and I'm hoping the intersection of Philadelphia and Victoria becomes stronger um, as we go on this exploration. David Devan is the General Director of Opera Philadelphia. What's Up With Opera is a podcast by Pacific Opera Victoria. It's produced by me, Rebecca Haas, 
along with Denise Ball and Jennifer Van Evra. That wraps up our first season. If you missed any episodes, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying What's Up With Opera, make sure to write a review and share. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>